If you would remain standing and open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 123. Psalm 123. So we continue a couple of more weeks uh, with the summer series through the Psalms. We'll have this one and one more, and then we'll pick back up in our study of John's Gospel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. A song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of content. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. Would you use it this morning? to shape our vision as your people. Lord, we are so prone to look in so many different directions for help. Correct us through this psalm to lift our eyes by faith to you, Christ, our King, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Just a a few remarks on sabbatical before we jump into the psalm. It was great um, to be with family. And I just wanted to say thank you for the, that time. It was, it was a really good time. In some ways, though, the, we visited other churches every Sunday that we were gone. And in some ways, we were blessed by that. And it was great. Uh, in other ways, it just made us long for our church family. So uh, we're really glad to, um, to have you as our church family. And Uh, not ashamed to call you brother and sister. Um, I probably earned like a C, like if you're, if you could make an A in sabbatical or, you know, an utterly failing grade, I'm probably like a solid C, maybe a C minus. I didn't rest as well as I wanted to. I didn't, we engaged family. We did some things like that, but I don't know that anybody could ever come back from something like that and say, man, I just aced that. Like, that would mean the kingdom had come, right? It's a reminder that our true Sabbath, our true sabbatical is in Christ. And you you have Christ, whether you're grinding at work or resting on the Lord's Day or five weeks into a six-week sabbatical, you have Christ. I read a, a few books along the way, and one of them was called Sensing Jesus by Zach S1, and he has a poem in the front of it. It's called Remembering Our Purpose. I'm just going to read this. The place he gives us to inhabit, the few things he gives us to do in that place, the persons he invites us to know there, 
these, our days, our lingering. It is enough to know then this old work of hands, his hands and ours to love here, to learn his song here, like crickets that scratch and croon from nooks unseen, carrying on with what they were made for, the nightcraft of unnoticed faces with our wings unobserved, until he walks again in the cool of the day to call our names once more, and we then, with our stitched white flags, will from behind his evergreens finally unhide ourselves unblushed with him to stroll once more. I think that's a good summary of what I wanted to accomplish, remembering who I am, remembering who you are, and what God has made us to be. The song before us today does this very thing. It's a, it's a, it's a stark, in-your-face reminder of where you're to look. The psalmist is pointing us to worship on the way he's reminding us that the eyes of our heart should be focused uh, on God himself. His ears could be on the scorn of those who clearly don't like him very much. His eyes could be on those who have it easy in this life. His heart could be drawn in some ways to overcome those around him who are swollen with pride. Yet this psalm is a corrective voice, pointing all of us and orienting all of us to where we should be looking, with the eyes of our heart. If Christian life is not one of ease and comfort, Bonhoeffer says, quote, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him what? Come and die. The experience of this psalm, like, hey, welcome back, pastor. You threw us in the deep end with a psalm of lament. That's honest. The psalms are full of laments. This is, this is a, a guy processing his life and, and, and sensing scorn, and it could come from outside of him. Guess what, guys? It can come from inside of him. All of this echoes what Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and do what? Take up your cross and follow me. It's a hard place to be, but it's the place that we're often called, that we absolutely are called as Christians. This psalm has much to teach us about where we're to look along that hard path. It teaches us to pray for God's provision to cry out to God for his mercy. The psalm teaches a lot about humility on this Christian path as pilgrims. It teaches us to orient our lives in front of the face of God. It ultimately teaches us the, the lesson of Hebrews 12. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When our worldly vision is dim, when we are struggling, 
when things aren't the way they are supposed to be, which is the reality of a sin-broken, sin-filled world, when things aren't the way they are supposed to be. Look to Jesus. He endured the ultimate scorn, the ultimate contempt, so that we might find hope in him. As pilgrims on this path, we, we have hope, looking to his gracious hand. The psalm is about worship. It's a reminder that when we come together to worship, God is the focus. He's the one that the eyes of our hearts are, are to gaze at. Some words about the, the structure and place of this psalm. We had to pick up a psalm of ascent. This is like, um, this is like their app, right? They would, they would download an app to use on, on their pilgrimage. And it would show them the way, not like our maps show us the address. It would show them the way of their heart as they went to worship annually in Jerusalem. Ascent means to go up. And it's, the thought is Jerusalem is a higher place and wherever you're coming from, you're going up to worship. And th this app was a songbook of 15 songs. So they would, whenever the family would go up together, maybe a bunch of people would gather together and they would be going up to, to worship God. That, that's, this is the app they used. He's, 15 psalms running from 120 to 134. 120 acknowledges that this road will not be easy. 121 backs away and sees the goodness and the salvation of the Lord. 122 celebrates making the journey and rejoices that they're in the presence of God. 123, however, proud people, scorn, contempt, Yes, go worship God. Open up your Psalm of Ascent app and, and sing all the songs, but know that there are laments here. I hope you've really enjoyed uh, the, the psalms this summer. You've been blessed by them. I hope and encourage you to, to keep reading them as a, as a steady part of your diet year-round. One reason we should all appreciate the Psalms is they're incredibly honest. Unlike most of us, like I want rosy colored glasses to look at the world. I want to say everything is great. And sometimes everything is great. But sometimes it's not. And the Psalms say that as well. Hey, this is not all great. Scorn, pride, Hard things, struggle. Today we're going to look at the psalm by starting at the end. So we're going to look at the wound. We're going to look at the eye and we're going to look at the illustration. First, the wound. It's interesting that the problem isn't brought up until the end. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. We have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. It's not just this psalm, it's several psalms and sometimes in other places in scripture that you don't get the problem until the end. Why is that? 
Sometimes it's true to life. It's not to, the, the very end of Psalm 88 is almost worse than the beginning. He, he finds himself, he says at the end of the psalm, I, I, I don't have any friends. He, he finds himself drowning. And I think, think about it like this. Sometimes when you first go on a vacation, like you're still in hurry mode, you're still in like do, 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 but some point along the way, you begin to consider, stepping back a little bit from your life, you, you begin to consider what's going on. Like you finally have time to breathe, and then you're like, oh man, I didn't realize how bad things were. It, it, this happens often in life, and sometimes it can even happen in our weekly grind. We work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, boom, weekend. We can't rest. Because our brains are, are having, to, we have time maybe in that, those moments to process what's going on. And there we see all the problems. That's kind of what the psalm is doing. At the end, he, this, um, he, he's got razor sharp clarity of the, the enemy, this wound that he has. I think that's what's going on in this psalm. One likely explanation for these enemies is that uh, this would have been a season of exile. Israel longing to be home, and they can't be. And everyone around them looks at them as though they're different, off. You've done something to put yourself in this position. term scorn in verse 4 implies pride and ease on the part of others and this term content literally laughing stock the idea here, here is that the psalmist is being wounded and this woundedness can take many forms abandonment Open scorn, somebody literally coming at you, attacking you, attacking your character. It can be casual. Casual scorn is almost worse than direct scorn. Who among us has not felt that at one time or another? Scorn, rejection, abandonment, the cold contempt of others who should love us. Sometimes I think we feel scorn and contempt coming from ourselves. I think there are a couple of ways that we could, we could look at this, consider it. The first is the reality that, of, of this. As sinful people, we deserve the wrath and curse of God. There's a sense in which our lives as sinful people is offensive to a holy God. We rightly deserve His scorn. There's another way to look at this rejection and contempt. Isaiah 53 points the way He was despised. This is, this is of Jesus. He was despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, 
As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So you have these two sides that we could always view contempt and scorn through. One, that we deserve it in a cosmic way. And and two, that Christ has taken it. Lewis comments on both sides of these realities. Listen to this quote. It's really helpful. Quote, in the end, that face which is the delight or terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised, end quote. There's only two ways to understand this kind of cosmic reality of scorn, of contempt. Either conferring glory inexpressible in the person and work of Christ or unending shame. I think the psalm is inviting us to consider hardship in our lives. So the question I would hang on you, I have had to think a lot about it this week, is what's going on in your life? What's going on that you can see in your life some semblance of what the psalm is about? What's the bad situation you find yourself in? Hard relationship? A difficult person? Now that we've restarted school, I'm sure all your relationships are great. No problems. Everything's fine. What area of your life can you with this psalmist say, I've had enough, I've had more than enough? The psalm doesn't get more specific with the wound, but it gets very specific with the eye. So the the assumption here is that we're all in one way or another wounded. But the answer at the beginning to this problem that he is looking at, sort of in vague at the end, the answer is what we want to focus on. Look at the eye. In a bad situation that we encounter, uh, no question everyone here encounters in life, in desperation, the question is, where do we look? Where do we look? Some look to family husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Maybe we look to the courts when things are really bad. Hey, I'm going to sue you. Maybe we look to the police. Terrible situation. Call 911. You probably should. Maybe our job or reputation or money. Maybe we look to stuff like that when things go terribly wrong. Is my savings account big enough? Maybe we look in not so good places to find comfort. Maybe we lift up our eyes from scorn and and from the pride of the world or from perceived attack. And maybe we lift up our eyes to sinful things. 
Pornography will make me feel good. I will feel some modicum of control here. Where over there, where I'm hurting, I have no control. Maybe if we lift up our eyes, the eyes of our heart to alcohol, we don't like the way we feel. We can do something about it. I think most of us, though, kind of encapsulated in all of this, most of us lift up our eyes to the mirror. When things are hard, when we have this wound, when we have these problems, we look to ourselves for answers. I can get myself out of this situation. Sola bootstrapa. Here we have this weary, harassed pilgrim wanderer. And his lesson is to you. I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. He's lifting the eyes of his his heart. He's lifting his affections to God himself. One commentator notes, his words soaring above his circumstances set his troubles in a context large enough to contain them. Listen to that note. That's so good. Why look to God? There's no one else who can contain the the weight of your problem. Your spouse may be great. They're not enough. Your, Your job may be excellent. It is not enough to fix you. You don't have a bank account this big to fix these kinds of problems. He looks to God who's, his his very being is big enough to carry the weight of this broken pilgrim. Nothing in this man's life is that big. Lift my eyes to you who are enthroned in the heavens. Why this heavenly throne business? Why describe God like that in the opening? You see this all the time when when, um, minds in Scripture, the, the writers of the Scripture, are thinking about how vast God is. They look to the heavens. It doesn't get any bigger. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 36, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like great, the great deep man and beast, O Lord, you save. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Very familiar. Listen, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Higher than the heavens. He's saying this, I I look to God because he's big. He's bigger than me. So often we, we, when our enemies seem big, your doubt, your fear, your trial, your trouble, your toil seem too big to carry, it's because they are. They absolutely are too big. 
You have problems too big for you, you to carry. And the only one who's big enough to contain all of that is God himself. There's an illustration here that's very helpful, but it's very hard. It's hard because of our pride. I don't even like it. And the illustration is this. He's like, be a baby. Utterly just, just be a baby. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Be a baby. A baby, when they're hungry, when they're thirsty, when they're in pain, I'm talking little ones, they, they have a singular focus. I want mom. Or I, I want my dad, and that's it. The focus isn't on all the chaos going around. They don't care what else is going on in the house. They don't care what's going on down the street. They don't care about the news. They have a singular focus. You come and get me and give me something to eat. Their focus is, is so closed on everything else. It's just give me my mother. Shut everything else out. And that is exactly what the psalmist is saying here. I lift my eyes to you. There's a whole lot of noise going on right now, but you are my singular focus. That's hard to do. That is, that is very hard. Again, just thinking about it this week, I do not like that. That is a humbling place to be. Can we do it? I love that Jesus, when children were brought to him and there was a uh, little dust up about it, he's like, hey, stop. Let them come. I should be the object of their affection. And he did not despise them, but sat with them, blessed them, prayed for them. He said, yes, their focus is right. In fact, he used them as an illustration about the kingdom. He says, you guys need to be more like them. You adults, you feel like you have it figured out. And their singular focus was just to come to me, to sit on my lap, maybe to hear a, a blessing spoken. He did not despise that. He said to us, to the grown-ups in the room, you be like them. Your hearts are looking all over everything, everywhere else. In, in your hardship, in your struggle, your hearts are tempted to look everywhere else. Look to Jesus. Come to him. He will not despise you. With that singular focus, lift your eyes to the heavens, to the God who is enthroned there, the only one big enough to hold your problems. In response to hardship, the, the psalmist is saying, I have to dwell on heavenly things. I have to focus on something else. Not just this earthly reality, but I have to inform this earthly reality with a heavenly one. Very simply, we are to pray. It's the exact focus of Jesus that we just heard in um, our New Testament lesson. 
the orientation of his prayer is the Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. His hallowed name, his kingdom come, his will done. Do you see how utterly, utter focused his prayer is? It's utterly just focused on God. Matthew Henry notes, our Lord Jesus taught us in prayer to have an eye to God as our Father in heaven. Not that he is confined there, but there especially he manifests his glory as the king in his court. Heaven is a place of prospect and a place of power. He that dwells there beholds thence all the calamities of his people and thence he can send to save them. He sees everything. He knows. He already knows the calamities that you're going through. He knows the scorn of this pilgrim. He, he gets it. And from heaven he sends to save Briefly look at the content of this heavenward prayer in verse 3 again. It's very simple. What is it? He's not looking to get a PhD in, in a lot of words. We heard Jesus warning against this, right? Don't, don't be like them. He, his, his mercy is, his, his prayer is awesome. Very simple. Have mercy on me, O oh Lord. Have mercy. Isn't that great? We are invited to take a plea like that to the throne of heaven directly to God. So we have this wound, we have the the gaze of the eye, and now let's look at, uh, lastly, this illustration that he uses. Behold, verse 2, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Until he has mercy on us. So he tells us where his gaze is. And then he gives us this illustration of what that looks like. Here's that heavenward gaze of this broken pilgrim. Like the servant who is in deep trouble. And the master's over there. And he, he, he starts to gaze at the hands of the master. I think when, sometimes when we hear this, and maybe if you've ever spent any time in the psalm, you've, like me, thought, okay, I know what this is. I got it. He is listening for the master, or she, the, this maidservant, is listening for the mistress to tell him what to do. Lord, just tell me what to do. Give me instructions somehow. Let, let me in on some kind of plan to get me out of this situation. That is not what the psalmist says. The psalmist is not saying the servant is sitting here listening for orders. It's not what it says. It says the servant is watching the hands of the master. The maidservant is watching the hands of her mistress. Listen, we, we should listen to God. We utterly should read his word. We utterly should defer to what our master tells us, but that is not what's going on in this psalm. 
The servant isn't looking for the master to inform him, to get him out of the situation. Rather, he's looking to the master to see what he's going to do. This is looking for action. I'm in a hard situation. I'm really messed up. I might even know good theology and have all the content down pat, but I need God to act. He needs to do something. If he doesn't do something, I'm in trouble. It's not, again, what am I supposed to do? It doesn't say he lifts up his ear to hear instructions to to get out of it. He's watching his hands watch the master's about to move. He's about to do something. And if he doesn't do something, we're, we're in deep trouble. Here's the thing, though. Sometimes we wait and we wait and we wait. Looking to the hand of God to do something is not always easy. It doesn't say it's easy here. There's a key word going on here. It says, until. The preposition, until, has a lot of function here. Until you show mercy, Lord, we're going to keep on calling on you. Until you rise up and act, Lord, Master, we're going to be right here until you provide. We will wait. We will wait and wait until you act. No, this psalm is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The problem presented here is too big, too overwhelming, too complicated. So we look to God alone and we wait on him to do something. Waiting is definitely hard. I don't like it. I want answers now. I want my situation resolved now, especially if it's relational. I don't like people to not like me. Fix it. Sometimes I can't. The same Holy Spirit who inspired this psalm, inspired others. We we sang, how long, O Lord? Do you know that that question is all through the psalms? How long? How long am I going to be stuck here? That's a Christian question. It's not a pagan question. That's a great prayer. This is classic God, vintage Yahweh, to have people wait. 400 years, slaves in Egypt. Do you think God was unaware? No, no, he, he, he causes his people to wait and waiting. They can cry out to him. He hears, he knows, wait. 400 more years on the, the close of this era of the prophets and the kings, right? The end of Chronicles, boom, silence. 400 more years. He answers the the 400 years of slavery and bondage down in Egypt, how? He takes them out. 
With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he comes and gets his people and liberates them. That's his answer for silence. And then the 400 years of, of quiet is, is, I am coming to get you. Not just the, the silence from the prophets, but the whole world longing for a redeemer. And, and it all comes down like you have this baby crying in a manger. Changes everything. Rocks the whole world. He has an answer. He has not abandoned, nor will he ever abandon his people. This is what the God of heaven does. Like the servants in this psalm, we too look to the hand of our master for mercy. We look to Christ. It's really interesting if you, and I don't think that the text is doing this. It's not pointing us here, but it, it, you can't help but think about the hands of Christ. If we are the, 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 the pilgrim who is struggling in this psalm and we are told to look to the hand of our master until he acts, we're in trouble. What do we see in his hand? Do you remember Thomas? It's a great illustration of this text. So Jesus comes and he, he's... He's risen. Three days in the grave, he comes and greets his disciples. Only Thomas isn't there. Not initially. All the other disciples clamor, hey, Thomas, he's risen. It really is him. He's like, nope. Guys, I can't believe it. In fact, I'm not going to believe it until I see him myself, until I see his scars. I'm not going to believe. And does Jesus ridicule that? The eyes of the servant eventually got to see the hand of his master. What did he see there? What do, what do the master's hands look like? They're scarred. They had nails driven through them into a Roman gibbet. That is the extent to which our God would go to rescue his people out of trouble. That's why our eyes go heavenward, because he is... He, he has done it. He has saved us. You don't think he'll listen to you when you're having trouble? Look at the hands of the master. They have scars in them, proving his, his incredible love for us. And that way, this psalm points us directly to Christ. Reminding us why we can look to the heavens again and again and again. Christ has done it. See how much God loves you. Remember the lengths at which he has already gone to, to rescue you and me, sinners. So again, the question, what, what have you had enough of? Look, we're all there at some time in our life. What form is scorn and contempt taking in your life. Do you know what to do? Look to the hand of our master. Remind yourself again of the gospel. Look to the heavens, the only place big enough to hold problems like yours and mine. And this is love. Not that we love God that he loved us and gave his son to die on that cross for us.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for their radical honesty. Thank you, Lord, that as we weather storms of scorn and contempt, whether it be from inside our own heads or outside, we have a place to look that's big enough. Lord, may we remind ourselves as we look to you enthroned in the heavens, would we remind ourselves of your goodness, of your gospel. Lord, show us Christ, the scarred hands of our master, the links that you, Lord, have gone through to love sinners like us. May that reframe how we look at the scorn of this world and shape us more and more into the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.